Hello, hello, welcome to the Rajapistan podcast. Let's welcome Jay Iyer. He is first of all a researcher in microbiology. He is a double ISEP finalist and RSI Research Science Institute 2020 finalist. Jay created a bacteriophage cocktail that showed outstanding efficacy in killing E. coli bacteria in meat. And as part of his ISEF 2020 project, he developed a novel wave of proteolysis in fighting against Alzheimer's disease. Jay is also first place division challenge winner at National Science Bowl, founder and CEO of the nonprofit organization Mind Relief, and through Agape in Action, he traveled to Guatemala to assist in gynecological treatments. And he is invested in scientific advocacy fields, teaching the younger generation about STEM concepts. Jay is an ECAM Youth Ambassador, also treasurer of the Indian Student Association, and a distinguished ultimate frisbee player. Such cool topics that we are going to expand on during the podcast episode. And hey, Jay, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad that you are on episode 30. It's definitely a milestone, and I can't wait to hear all about the cool stuff you are doing. But I suggest let's begin on a cellular level. So what inspired you to move into the world of microbiology? So actually, ever since I was a little kid, I was really fascinated with biology. And I grew up in a really traditional Indian household where spices were always used in our cooking. And my grandfather used to grow these spices in our backyard garden. And I used to always um, tend to the garden with my grandfather. And, um, you know, spending these long hours in the garden uh, really sparked my interest in biology. After I saw, like, the diverse plant and animal life that could exist in as little as a handful of soil, I became more and more interested in the life forms that can exist, which you can't see with your eye. So. You know, I would go back to bookshelves at my grandparents' house, which were filled with old encyclopedia books, and I and I read more about our world, um, especially the re- the vast realm of creatures that you can't see with your eye. And my love for microbiology really began. That's amazing to hear that in your childhood you have distinct memories of being fascinated by the wonders of nature and having that personal interaction with what's happening inside your soul. Do you remember uh, an organism or some kind of microbiological machinery for which you said, wow, that's incredible? One of the first ones that I was looking at were actually um, basic bacterial cells. And um, whenever I started reading those in those encyclopedia books is, is when I really became fascinated about, you know, just how much there is that we just can't see. You know, like so many species of bacteria, archaea. Of course, as I got older, I started reading more and more and I, and, and, and I learned more about viruses and that type of stuff. But it definitely piqued my interest and... Um, I'm so, so thankful that I was able to um, have that connection. Yes, and afterwards, just as you mentioned, you had the initial connection with that field, but of course you had to gain some data and some knowledge and more in-depth info about microbiology, which leads us to your ISAF project eventually, your 2018 one. Could you expand on that, on the bacteriophage therapy you've implemented against E. coli? Across the United States right now, so over 75,000 cases of E. coli 0157H7 infection exist each year. So E. coli 0157H7 is is probably the most pathogenic and most harmful strain of E. coli 
And um, it's the leading cause and it's the most fatal um, strain of E. coli there is. And um, the leading cause of this illness is actually when the bacteria is ingested via ground beef that either has not been cooked properly or it has, hasn't been treated effectively. So right now in the meat treatment industry, they rely on the use of these commercial biocides. So these commercial biocides are, are essentially, you know, industrial chemicals that they spray the meat with before the meat reaches distribution facilities and eventually the grocery store. Um, so they have these giant facilities with the meat on the on, on racks and, and they spray it with these chemicals. You know, the leading biocide that they currently used is an organic compound. Um, the short form of it is called DBDMH. And this DBDMH chemical, while it's approved for use in facilities, it is known to cause skin, eye irritation, lung irritation, and the compound is extremely dangerous for aquatic ecosystems if polluted by, um, you know, the facility runoff. So my project really dealt with developing a viral cocktail that could be used to implement against this deadly strain of E. coli bacteria. And... Um, Bacteriophages are viruses that can infect bacteria, so um, these bacteriophages aren't harmful to the human body, and they're very specific, meaning that only one type of phage will infect a particular strain or family of bacteria that have similar receptors. So for example, a P1 phage can only infect E. coli, and a P22 phage can only infect Salmonella. What, what I did was I, I used a spraying mechanism close to what is used in the meat treatment facilities to kind of emulate what they're using. And I sprayed the meat with the P1 phage cocktail, as well as the commercial biocide and water as a control. And I found that the P1 phage was, was the most effective in killing the bacteria. Very intriguing. So the deadly guile is found in ground beef, which is the carrier of the pathogenic strain, and the microbial resistance strains in terms of DBDMH which just sounds like uh, that we are DJ players, I feel like, with these scientific abbreviations. But you've got that aspect um, covered. I want to touch on the part that you mentioned that how is antimicrobial resistance related to the study? It's such a hot topic, and I would love to hear your take on it. Absolutely. So antimicrobial resistance is a really, really big and hot topic right now, as you said. Um, so bacterial strains are increasingly getting resistant to antimicrobial drugs um, due to mutations and new chemicals and new drugs have to be continually developed so that we can win the war over antimicrobial um, resistant um, drugs. And, and one, of the, one of the biggest um, strains of bacteria that are antimicrobial resistant is, of course, MRSA. You have um, um, that, that strain, which is resistant. But... Bacteriophages have the capability of mutating along with bacteria. I mean, bacteriophages, while they are technically viruses and technically classified as non-living organisms, they still have the capability of changing the, their DNA along with bacterial cells. Um, so because of this, bacteriophages can help ensure that new chemicals and drugs need not be continually developed to overcome this antimicrobial resistance. Yes, it's a constant fight. Antibiotic-resistant bacteria just grow at such a fascinating pace. I wanted to uh, touch on this and hear your opinion on how it relates to the study you've been continuing because we see data out there that by 2050, um, according to CDC, it will reach 10 million, even more, and you are targeting such a crucial topic, but your project features a counterintuitive effect by introducing a bacteriophage. 
Can you tell a little bit more detail? Of course, you know the amounts you can share about how you could actually measure the efficacy it um, showed against E. coli. Essentially, what I did to test this was I inoculated a, a cross-section of beef brisket. So I just used beef brisket, you know, inoculated with E. coli bacteria. And I took a colony forming unit count. So essentially, I counted the number of colonies that were in a cross-section of the meat. And after I sprayed it, I let it sit for a little bit. And then I looked at the reduction of the colonies before and after um, before and after the um, each treatment was sprayed. And I found that the P1 phage had the biggest reduction in the colony forming units um, after the um, after the P1 phage and the and the DBDMH and, and the water was sprayed. Um, and of course, there are multiple factors here. Um, it could be that the force of the the force of the spraying system could just simply be washing some of the cells away. Um, that is also a, um, a aspect of this that we can look at. And definitely another thing that is vital is ensuring that these phages do not kill important human gut bacteria. One of the limitations is that in order for this bacteriophage to be used on humans, it must be engineered such that the phage does not infect that good E. coli that exists in the human gut. Absolutely, because we got to maintain the healthy equilibrium of our microbiome. We got to protect our good neighbors. Absolutely. Counting CFU in several rounds must have been a very tiring job to do. <laughs> right. After that, you've put on the boxing gloves to fight AD. Now, how does Protec go against the infamous tau protein in this novel proteolysis? So can you expand on the project and what your machinery does? Proteins are vital for life and to be healthy. And whenever proteins get folded, um, there is a certain error rate by which misfolding of the protein can occur. So, of, of course, this error is extremely small, but whenever it does occur, these, these proteins have the potential of causing serious diseases, um, including tau protein aggregates within the gray matter of the brain, and can be responsible for a multitude of neurological disorders, as well as prions, which are known to cause diseases such as Kuru, CJD, and others. But there actually exists a natural system known as the ubiquitin proteasome system that exists in all prokaryotic and eukaryotic cells that is responsible for degrading these misfolded and, un and unwanted proteins. So essentially what happens is that whenever the proteasome recognizes a misfolded protein, it'll be able to degrade it. And um, they are highly specific and they only target proteins for degradation that have been marked with a specific enzyme or cofactor known as ubiquitin. So the proteasome recognizes a misfolded protein that is tagged with ubiquitin and then subsequently degrades it. Um, so the protax actually stand for proteolysis targeting chimeras. And these are small molecules that are capable of hijacking the system to induce targeted protein degradation. Um, so what happens is that this molecule is introduced into the cell and tricks the proteasome into thinking that this protein of interest, such as tau protein, whatever disease-causing protein that we want to degrade, is what the proteasome has to degrade. So using my developed protax, I've been able to effectively harness this natural system to cause the proteasome to induce degradation of tau. That's amazing. Now, I'm going to start with a light comment on that. Is it inspired by the meme he protect he attacked but most importantly he protect oh yeah <laughs> i do <laughs> i just couldn't stop thinking about it because <laughs> <laughs> 
it just rhymes with <laughs> that actually works perfectly i haven't thought about that but yeah included in the marketing yeah absolutely um, and thank you for expanding on the molecular bio background and it, how it relates to the degradation of proteins in proteasomes and having that ubiquitin effect in it, how the cell cycle lets it go from the G2 phase to the mitosis uh, one as well. Now, right. I'm really intrigued by this machinery and I believe that it's not only targeting the tau protein in AD, but could be used against other proteins as well? Right. So, so, so Protex are not, are, are actually one of the new emerging drugs in the market right now. And these drugs can be engineered such that we can degrade any protein of interest. Um, so basic Protex structure is basically just three components. Um, it involves a portion of the molecule that can attach to the target protein. A degradation sequence, which can facilitate the recruitment of an enzyme called E3 ligase, which facilitates the attachment of the ubiquitin to the target protein, and a cell-penetrating portion to facilitate in entry into cells. So as long as we have two, two parts of the molecule, the protect molecule, that can attach to our target protein and this degradation sequence, we can engineer it such that we can degrade any harmful protein, which is absolutely not limited to tau. It has a wide range of applications listening to your expansion on a project and I would have really enjoyed seeing it on ICEF 2020 platform now due to this pandemic situation. Right. It cannot be available but I'm sure it would have been a top runner. Thank you so much. We're gonna move into a little bit of a different field, but you are also the founder and CEO of Mind Relief. What is the motivation behind starting this nonprofit organization? So unfortunately, my, my grandfather, um, he was diagnosed with an extremely rare brain disorder um, called progressive supranuclear palsy. This brain disorder is, is, is really rare. It causes the deterioration of motor functions and causes loss of balance, speech, and difficulty moving the eyes. And unfortunately, he passed away in February of last year. And, you know, as I mentioned at the start of the podcast, um, you know, he and I used to always work in the garden together and we shared a bond unparalleled with any, anyone else. And um, I knew that after he passed, I had to do something to help everyone else that was suffering through the same situation. Um, so soon after his passing, I founded this 501c3 uh, nonprofit organization um, called Many Iron Neurodegenerative Diseases, um, also called Mind Relief. I wanted to provide support to those suffering from the same disease as he was and also related diseases um, that I witnessed my grandfather suffering from. First of all, I'm really sorry for your loss. Thank you. Truly inspiring how you put that heartbreaking experience into action by providing help to others. There is this quote featured on the Nobel Prize Organization's Instagram today because in 1950-50, Albert Einstein passed away on this day. And he said that only a life lived for others is a life worthwhile. And I think that your activity within Mind Relief really represents that message. Thank you kind of how do you provide and where do you imagine it develop in the future? The mission of Mind Relief is to really provide support to caregivers and family members of those suffering from really rare neurodegenerative diseases. And we have teamed up with national support organizations such as Cure PSP, 
um, who specialize in providing information and aid to those suffering from diseases such as PSP, um, corticobasal degeneration, um, multi multiple system atrophy, and also other related diseases in order to raise awareness and better support those from all over the state of Louisiana. And um, since the founding of the organization, I've able to hold um, bi-monthly bi meetings and I've been able to have the opportunity to give brief presentations about these illnesses. And um, one of the biggest things that I've been able to support or the support meetings allow me to do is to answer questions um, regarding patient care. And, you know, living with and um, helping my grandfather over the course of three years since his diagnosis really familiarized me with the prognosis of PSP, as well as various things that were implemented to ensure that his quality of life was as high as possible. And um, while Mind Relief has been largely successful, there is so much more that's currently in development, um, such as the creation of a specialized web portal, presence of Mind Relief in patient doctor's offices, and expansion across all social media platforms so we, we can better reach patients and their families across Louisiana. I really like the aspect that you've touched on the questions part, because when starting this kind of mission or any kind of mission, what's really important is covering the gray areas and providing clear and intentional help to others. If you expand and uh, as you've uh, said you're going to expand on social media platforms i'm more than willing to share it on the podcast profile and raise awareness in that way to contribute to your organization thank you thank you so much you also worked at uh, knock knock children's museum teaching kids about stem concepts and you're <laughs> right. also the president of the chemistry club and in your opinion what are some of the best ways to involve kids in doing science? You know, doing these two activities is honestly one of the highlights um, of, of my year. You know, working with these kids and like seeing the smiles across their faces, it's honestly like one of the best things like to see. Um, but to answer the question, one of the best ways to get the kids involved is, is through hands-on demonstrations. You know, kids love, kids love to see science visually. And, you know, through Chemistry Club, I've had the wonderful opportunity of going to some numerous elementary and middle schools across the county um, to teach these basic and intermediate level chemistry concepts. So a few demonstrations that I do include non-Newtonian fluids, acids and bases, and flame tests. And the kids certainly love seeing the vibrant colors that are produced with the flame tests. And they also love playing with the oobleck. Um, you know, we have um, cornstarch and water and we mix it together. And it creates this kind of gooey compound. Um, and they love, you know, playing with it and stuff like that. I love seeing how intrigued they get when certain bases turn blue in the presence of an indicator and certain acids turn red. And, um, you know, I love to see the, the kids enjoy these demonstrations and, and the smile across their face when they participate. Color is undoubtedly dopamine for children. <laughs> Absolutely right. You've uh, said that you enjoy seeing the smiles on their faces. Do you have a memorable story about a child or several children that just pops up in your mind when you think about those outreaches you've done in the past? Some of the best... Um memories I have is actually when they've when they see the flame test and you know sometimes I get I play a little game with them and I see like hey um what color do you think this compound will turn what compound uh, what color do you think um sodium chloride will turn and they kind of guess it and sometimes they get it right and once they get it right they're so happy and that's honestly one of the best things I've seen that's so great so you are doing a pre-poll before uh, actually doing the Right, right. The reaction. And as treasurer of the Indian Student Association, 
you've been invested in that field as well. So what are three key things you would highlight to others about Indian culture? But first of all, uh, just expand on the work you've been doing there. Throughout my life, I've been really raised with a sense of Indian cultural identity and, you know, being a part of my uh, of a school and community that's really growing in diversity. I have the opportunity of spreading these aspects of Indian culture to students throughout my school and through um, being treasurer of the Indian Student Association. Some things that I would, I would love to highlight to others about Indian culture is our food, Bollywood music, and definitely our gatherings and festivals. And, um, you know, like I said earlier, our food is really spicy. And while it does take some getting used to, it's definitely worth it. You know, Bollywood is as big, if not bigger than Hollywood in India. And, and the music, the Bollywood music is such a really big component of our culture. And um, we also have a lot of festi- festivities and gatherings, so, um, such as Diwali. Uh, which is the Festival of Lights, where everyone gets together and throws a party. And um, Holi, which is the Festival of Colors, and everyone comes together and has a fun time, you know, playing with water guns and putting colors on each other. And it's a really, really uh, fun, fun experience. Yes, and the photographs made during the Holly holiday are actually incredible when you see the combination of those distinct and vibrant colors. Um, it's, I think, one of the right, cultural yeah. events that are so eye-catching. And in terms of Bollywood music, um, I really like that you mentioned it. In just brackets, there was an Indian playlist of Bollywood music that I've been addicted to on YouTube. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's awesome. One of the songs is actually like six minutes long, and I just love dancing uh-huh. to it, and then it got deleted. Now, I have a personal really? vendetta against that YouTube account now. <laughs> <laughs> Because I couldn't find a song on Spotify or anywhere else. But now I would like to ask you, what is your favorite song um, in terms of Bollywood music, if if you can name one? Um, you know, there are so many that I have. Um, I have like a whole playlist on Spotify with like over 100 songs. But probably um, it's, my, I can tell you my favorite artist. Okay. Yeah, so my favorite artist is Arjit Singh. And I think that he sings um, some like the best Bollywood music. And I have so many recommendations for you if you're interested. Yes, I think I've heard his name, but I'm not really uh-huh. educated within uh-huh. the uh, Bollywood music department. So, well, in terms of Indian culture, you must have a high tolerance for spicy food as well. Do you have a favorite meal yeah. that you would recommend to others trying out? Uh-huh. Yeah, you know, um, what one of my favorite Indian dishes is actually it's actually a chicken curry, uh, it's butter chicken. So we have you know um, the the curry with the chicken, a really spicy curry, and you can either eat it with um, rice or you can eat it with bread. Um, our bread is called naan or roti. You can eat it with that, and it, and it's really really good, and uh, I highly recommend it. Yes. In terms of sports department, you are invested in playing ultimate frisbee. What is your favorite part or the best part about playing and competing in that sport? One of my biggest hobbies is is playing ultimate frisbee. And, um, you know, starting in my freshman year of high school, I, I helped to bring an organized team to Baton Rouge High. You know, in our first tournaments, we were, we were met with much more prepared and balanced teams. Um, you know, so this prompted us to make some changes to our program. And um, since then, we've had LSU players coach us once a week. And um, as one of the captains, my main responsibilities include teaching students the game of Ultimate Frisbee, who are unfamiliar with the sport, and also contacting other schools in the state to organize tournaments. And um, I would say the best part about playing 
and competing in Ultimate Frisbee is definitely the community and the close bonds and friendships that I've formed with my teammates, as well as the interactions that we have together when playing against other teams. When you're playing the sport, uh, there might be others who are not familiar with it. You've, I suppose, you've got two distinct teams. And how do you score? So you give it to each other. And uh, where is the end point of the game? It's kind of like American football, except you can't really touch each other that much. And you can't run with the disc. So as soon as you catch it, you have to stay still. And you have 10 seconds to throw it to someone else. And you score by reaching the end zone. So there are like two 20, 20 feet end zones on each side of the um, on each side of the field. So you can score if you um, if you throw it to someone who's in the end zone. Okay, so it's a more interpersonally appropriate sport of you know football, not trying to uh, rupture <laughs> right, your jaws right. or or your legs. Yeah. yeah. It's great that this topic has been brought up because um, it's a unique addition in terms of, you know, people who have been on on this podcast as well. Yeah, you know, it, it's a really, you know, it's an, it's an unconventional sport, but like once you start playing it, like I assure you, like you're going to love it. Through Agape in Action, you travel to Guatemala to assist in gynecological treatments. Could you expand on your volunteering experience? One of the most transformative events in my life was was when I had this opportunity, you know, to give back to a community outside to the one in which I live um, in, in Guatemala. So so last summer through a nonprofit organization known as Agape in, in Acción or Agape in Action, I, I traveled through to an impoverished area of Guatemala known as Santa Cruz del Quiche, where medical care is sparsely available or accessible in many areas. And Agape in Action's mission is to bring the love of Christ to those in need through medical care. This town is really rural in nature, and um, a lot of people rely on subsistence farming or craftsmanship for survival. And the people living there mostly eat corn, as it is a staple crop that will thrive due to the climate and a long growing season. And these corn-based diets ultimately lead to people being severely malnourished and can lead to illnesses such as um, diabetes. One image that really continues to bring tears to my eyes today was, was when I saw a boy eating corn with a corn tortilla. And, and that boy and so many kids just like him all over the world are, are malnourished due to poor living conditions. And through Agape in Action, we were able to provide that family and many more with nutritious food, such as chicken, beef, pork, beans, um, you know, rice, lettuce, carrots, and so many other fruits and vegetables. And I was so, so blessed that I was able to go there and and do that for that family and, and so many others. And, and over the course of that week, we um, we set up this makeshift clinic in a nearby building. Um, to see patients that were either pre-diabetic or potentially diabetic and also screen women for gynecological illnesses. And I was able to test the blood sugar of people in the area and give them medication based off of patients' blood sugar level history that was being tracked for several months. And based off of these initial screenings and tests, we were able to perform abdominal hysterectomies for women at a local hospital who had been in severe pain for several years um, using specialized equipment that we brought from the United States. And, you know, doing all that I could to assist in those surgeries, such as, you know, holding the suction, holding retractors, or sterilizing these surgical instruments was one of the most rewarding moments of my life. And it, and it was inspirational in furthering my desire to give back to my community. This is truly inspiring. And your background story really 
gave rise to many topics I would like to touch on. First of all, that includes your work in the makeshift clinic. So performing uh, hysterectomies is linked to actually removing the uterus of women. And I believe that, of course, in uh, Guatemala, there are hospitals in bigger cities, but in rural areas, there are all the like health centers, like Centro de Salud and um, other parts where it can be formed, which raises more problems in that regards. Mm -hmm. In Quiche, it's actually so rural that they only have one medical center, and that medical center, you know, the conditions there are really not that good. You know, the the operating room was over eighty to ninety degrees Fahrenheit, which is really not good as far as infection control. The quality of their equipment and, and their their um you know area in which they work in that area is is not that good we're so lucky to be able to go there and bring so much of the equipment that we have we're lucky to have here um you know to 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 give to them absolutely to make the communication easier and more flowing with the patients you could actually use your spanish knowledge to help them out um how was that experience like uh, communicating with them everyone there really did not speak any English. I, I took Spanish for a couple of years um, before I traveled. So I had some knowledge about Spanish, um, but definitely before I went, I, I studied a little bit more. And I, and I loved communicating with people in their native language. You know, communicating with them in English was is, some, is one thing, but really communicating with them on, in their native language is so much better. And I can relate to them in so much, in a much better way. And um, I, I was so lucky to be able to do that. Yes, especially because you are immersed in the culture and everything that is uh, surrounding you is in Spanish. I think key benefits of learning the language is interacting with people who actually speak it. You know, not just right, right, learning grammar books. That's one part. That's great. You you receive the grades. But implementing it in real life situations, now that's a deal breaker. And um, I'm really glad to hear that you could have a more personalized experience with your patients. Yeah, yeah, that that was definitely one of the one of the things that really made me made that experience like what what it was. Um, you know, just connecting with those people, just giving back to that community. Yes, and not just the physical aspect, but agape is like putting love into action. Did you provide like spiritual needs to the families living in the extreme poverty? Was that part of the mission? Yes, yes. We would go to the these places where people were living in these really, really poor conditions, and some of them didn't even have beds. Um, so we, we would go and we would build beds for these people, and we would have um, you know prayer sessions and things for them um, as well. Giving them support and being with those people in a time of need was, was so lucky. Uh, I'm so lucky to be able to do that. It, it was one of the biggest and best experiences of my life. Having that connection and being with them in prayer in a joint union is actually so transformative and not just, of course, on a spiritual level, maintaining that vertical relationship with God, but also in terms of science. Neuroscientists have already shown that when you pray, there are new neural connections formed in your brain and uh, being in prayer also helps you in terms of... um, you know, promoting your immune system and fighting against illnesses. So definitely a lot of physical benefits. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just to wrap up, uh, what are some of the most memorable lessons you've received while being in service for the benefit of others? Some of the most memorable experiences um, were definitely, you know, going to Guatemala and doing this. But I can tell you that 
through Acom, um, I have been going to some, you know, homeless shelters and, um, you know, seeing and helping people in their time of need and doing all of this stuff really shows me, you know, how much I can do to help my community. And I think that that's the, the best thing that I've done so far. If I can point a finger and say that, this activity was probably the most rewarding. It was giving back to all of these communities um, through through being president of Chemistry Club and you know doing the STEM outreach, um, going to Guatemala and doing these th- these surgeries and and helping these people who don't have um, what we have and going to these homeless shelters and doing all of that. Um, I, I can't give you one specific experience, uh, experience that was better than the others, but I can tell you that all of these experiences were definitely one of the best I've ever had. You are focused on providing um, to others in terms of external outreach. And one of the mainstream messages I think that Gen Z gets is that, wow, it's such an individualized culture and it's all about highlight reels and selfies. But when you right, right. look like a little bit deeper and uh, take a microscopic view, you see that, okay, we have our Instagrams, but also providing help to others, I think, especially inside of the scientific community is such a vital part. If someone wants to help another person, having that right kind of mindset really helps. Because, of course, we live in different conditions, but even with the little me might have could be substantial to others. Right, right. Living in the United States, a country where we have so many, just so many resources can sometimes be blinding to us because we take some of so much of the stuff that we have for granted. You know, while our, you know, Gen Z, like you said, is so focused on this highlight reel, you know, with the social media, Facebook and Instagram, you know, taking all these pictures, we often lose sight of of what really matters. And we often take a lot of the stuff that we have for granted. And, you know, going and living with these with these people at, at, in Guatemala really, you know, opened my eyes up to how blessed I am to have all the stuff that all the, these people unfortunately don't have access to. I agree with you on many levels that having that kind of a transformative experience can really put your gratitude in check. Absolutely. And you've mentioned it, but uh, going from the appetizer to the full meal, you're also an ECAM youth ambassador. So expand on what ECAM stands for and what is the central message that you want to share uh, with others? Yeah, so um, another one of my notable, um, you know, non-STEM related activities is, is through the nonprofit organization ACOM. So the healthcare system is actually extremely poor in, uh, in in impoverished areas in India, and the Sanskrit word ACOM directly translates to unity, which aligns with the mission of the organization, which is to bring people from all walks of life together as we provide quality healthcare to impoverished mothers and children. And the, the central message that I really want to give to others is unity and staying side by side with one another, no matter who you are or what your background is. Through ACOM, members of my Hindu temple and I founded this ACOM USA chapter, where we have been able to partake in numerous activities that benefit the well-being of our community, such as uh, preparing and serving food at homeless shelters and arranging walks and silent auctions for fundraising, 
And we've raised many funds, which goes directly to local homeless shelters, as well as to the parent organization in India. And these funds help provide health care to mothers and children in impoverished areas in India. Very inspiring outreach. First of all, I couldn't decipher what ECAM stands for. And now you mentioned that it's an abbreviation of the Sanskrit word. So now it all makes sense. Yeah. It's about bringing health to others, to the community, to the mother and the child. I think touching on the unity aspect is so crucial because um, unity is not conforming to a pattern and you are staying inside of the box, but actually bringing your expertise and your knowledge for the benefit of others. You're doing the same with your scientific background in terms of um, advocacy, let that be outreach within the ECAM network or in science-related subjects. Yeah, and um, especially in today's times, I think that a lot of our you know mass media and stuff is so disjointed with everything. And I think that one of the biggest things that people need to learn is, is, is unity and, and really being you know, close to one another, no matter like who you are or, or, or where you're from. And now we are doing the if questions, which is universally featured part of the podcast. We've had many dinner guests in our minds so far, but now I'm interested that if you could have a dinner with anyone living today or in the past, regrettably, we cannot go to the future, um, who yeah. would you choose and why? Oh, this is... A pretty loaded question, but you know, if I could have dinner with anyone living today or in the past, it would probably be with MIT researcher Feng Zhang, and um, he is such an inspiration to me. And I love the work that he's done, um, especially with his work with the uh, CRISPR-Cas9 system. And um, the CRISPR system has always been an interest of mine, and I've modeled specific CRISPR proteins through Science Olympiad. And you know, I have so many questions for Dr. Zhang. I'm really intrigued by the topic that you brought up because I'm part of an international initiative called Synthetics, and we are discovering those gray areas in terms of new era biotechnological inventions. We are talking about gene editing. I know it can be such a massive topic, but what's your sense on gene editing? Uh, in terms of implications and um, use in medical care or other fields within the CRISPR technology? Yeah, that, that, that's a great question. So, um, you know, the CRISPR-Cas9 system, while it has been shown to be useful and, and, and actually um, work in vitro and in vivo mouse models, um, some of the work that CRISPR-Cas9 can do to the human genome can actually be detrimental. So I think that Whenever CRISPR-Cas9 or any gene editing tool can be used, there has to be certain ethical and moral guidelines in, in which we are following. Uh, I did a huge research project on the CRISPR-Cas9 system, and I came across um, this, this uh, Chinese researcher um, that actually used CRISPR-Cas9 to genetically engineer babies to be resistant to HIV. While his intentions were good, and while he did this out of, you know, protecting these babies from HIV, there is so little that we know about what gene editing can do and what off-target effects can occur because of this system. And I think that we need to be extremely careful in how we implement this gene editing. And we have to you know, completely make sure that whatever we're doing is not harming anything else. Um, for example, you know, the HIV um, babies that were born, we have no idea what implications um, those specific edits ha are making on the rest of the baby and their development. Yes, I totally agree. It's like uh, playing a Russian roulette 
with the consequences yeah. and altering the genome. It's not only the thought or the intention that matters. So following a more consequentialist philosophy, you've got to take care of what your actions produce overall because gene editing is distinct in ways that you don't know what kind of uh, factors are going to be regulated by your intervention. But of course, we cannot deny right. the fact that it has so many possibilities in terms of improving our lives. So we, we got to find the golden way here. And it's hard to do because by daily new inventions are produced and we cannot know the outcome. So we got to, I think, change our pace, trying to follow innovation because innovation is so fast, but creating an ethical framework takes more time and intention. Definitely. And I, th and I think that the ethical framework surrounding gene editing is definitely one of the things that we have to focus on. And, you know, as science is so f fast paced and as researchers all over the world, you know, are doing breakthroughs day after day after day, I think we, you know, sometimes lose sight of the ethics behind science. And I really think that we must put these guidelines together and these ethical um, you know, a code of conduct before, um, you know, things get out of hand like they did um, with the HIV uh, resistant babies. Absolutely. We got to find fusion between those two fields and bringing in the humanities within the scientific realm. Now we're moving into the this or that game. And as its name suggests, you got to choose either or. Are you ready? Yes, I am. First one is summer or winter. Shoot. This is tough. Probably summer, um, just because I've grown up in Louisiana and it's basically summer year round here. Um, you know, our temperature doesn't go below 40 degrees. Probably summer. Yeah. That's pretty good. Do you have beaches nearby? Unfortunately not. Um, but I can, you know, it's a short drive to Alabama and we have Orange Beach there. And, um, you know, it's probably one of the prettiest beaches, um, but unfortunately not in Louisiana. Oh, well, that's sad. But in Alabama, yeah, yeah. you've got beaches and peaches. So yeah, <laughs> spicy or sweet? Absolutely spicy. Um, <laughs> just because of, um, you know, all the Indian food. I do like sweet things, obviously, but like a lot of what I eat is spicy. And there actually has been research done on, you know, spicy foods and, you know, them being like pretty good for you. So um yeah, so I'm pretty happy about that. Yes, it lowers your blood pressure and it cleans your blood. So all the good yeah. benefits join together. And I can relate to it. It's not Indian spice level, but in Hungary, we've got paprika, the red powder, and that can be pretty hot, but definitely not Indian level. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't had any Hungarian food, but you know, I'd love to try it sometime. Well, if you have the opportunity, I would say try out goulash. Goulash, okay. Do you eat beef? I do, I do. Basically, it's a beef stew filled with the veggies, very spicy and filling. Um, you can tuck bread slices into it and it just makes it very good. Wow, yeah, I definitely need to give that a try. An early bird or a night owl? I'm 100% a night owl. You know, um, I I kind of struggle to, to wake up for the podcast. Um, you know, I was, I was really, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm a hundred percent night owl. Um, unfortunately for, for school, I have to wake up at like 6am every day. So, you know, like when I have motivation to get up, 
I wake up. So like, you know, I had the podcast. I was like, okay, I have to get up. Like I cannot oversleep. I'm definitely a night owl. You know, I, I, I stay up until 2 and 3 a.m. Um, easily every day. So. Wow. Now doing a little bit of math here. If you go to bed around 2, how do you wake up at 6 for school? Um, you know, it's really tough. Um, I have a lot of coffee. You know, coffee really gets, gets me through my week. So yeah, so that, that, that's probably how I'm able to do it. Actually, I, I've been reminded of uh, Elon Musk here because when I was in interviewed, I think uh, Manning Whitby from Canada, he told me that he sleeps four hours a night. So it's kind of an Elon Musk, but you know, um, having that heightened level of productivity from your part as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I think Elon Musk, like he he sleeps like barely anything, and you know, sometimes I I, I wonder, you know, how are these people doing it? But then I discovered coffee and I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it's definitely a great invention <laughs> for night owls. And the last one is yeah. e extrovert or introvert or ambivert. <laughs> uh, um, I think I'm pretty extroverted. Um, you know, I, I enjoy talking to people. I enjoy, you know, having the connections um, and with, with others. And I, I would consider myself either, you know, a high ambivert or like uh, on the extrovert side or, or a complete extrovert. Yes, and it might be... It's, it's not a universal law, but uh, it might be related to having that external outreach and, you know, being there for others. Not saying that introverts aren't, but I think it might be translated in a different way for them. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. It just wraps up the podcast episode and all the things we've been talking about. What does science mean to you? Probably um, is one of the most loaded questions I've gotten in a while, and, and you know there, there really isn't any simple answer to this question for me. You know, to put simply, um, contrary to popular belief, science isn't all about intelligence. It's not all about winning competitions. And science, to me, is the pursuit of knowledge and to understand our world better than the day before. And science is all about bringing the world together and to to bridge the gap between one person and another. And it's all about collaboration and interacting with one another to share our ideas as we all pursue knowledge. I, I have one motto that I live by, and it's it's to always question everything. That today, that's in, in a world that's ridden with violence and you know ethnic and racial tensions and political drama, we can all turn to science as a centripetal force that can unite us all. And I have a quote here um, by Louis Pasteur that I would like uh, that I would love to read. Um, and he said that um, science knows no country because knowledge belongs to humanity and is the torch which illuminates the world. And I, I think that this quote is so relatable because, you know, science is, is not political. Science is not applies to one person more than another. It, it belongs to everyone. And this knowledge is, is just what we share and what we, what we uh, collaborate with to, um, to understand our world around us um, better than yesterday. Very beautifully put, and I appreciate you bringing in Louis Pasteur and following up with the microbiome team or theme yeah. during <laughs> and wrapping up the podcast. Not about your political views, whether you, you go left or right or whatever direction you choose. Science is actually tackling those huge problems that need solutions, pandemic situation as well. People started appreciating scientists and healthcare workers even more. Also value all the wisdom-filled advice that you shared in this podcast and your experiences in distinct areas where that would be advocacy, STEM outreach, working for others through Agape and Axiola. So thank you for being on this podcast episode. 
Thank you so much for having me, Blanca. I really appreciate it. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. If you want to show your support and be updated on all the news, make sure to hit that subscribe button and follow the pod on Instagram and Facebook as well. As always, thank you for taking a few moments of science with us and stay tuned for the next episode.